millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8 o'clock on Friday, December 15th. You're listening to Morning Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Coming up in news at 8.04, a Mississippi native is appointed to head U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development Southeast Region. A model developed to better understand how fresh water from the Bonnie Carey Spillway interacts with the Mississippi Sound estuary. When you open up and dump a bunch of fresh water, it changes everything. So we're trying to understand all of these processes and how they interact with each other. Plus, today marks 50 years since homosexuality was removed from the American Psychiatric Association's list of mental orders. A look at how the change has impacted the LGBT community. This is Morning Edition on MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. A hospital in northern Gaza has been raided by Israeli forces for the third day in a row. That's as major Israeli airstrikes hit both Gaza City in the north and Rafah in the south, according to the United Nations. NPR's Kat Lonsdorf has more. The Israeli military used tanks to raid the Kamal Adwin Hospital in Gaza City, according to a U.N. report, where Palestinians were rounded up in mass arrests. The Gaza Ministry of Health said that thousands of people seeking refuge in the hospital were forced by Israeli troops to leave, and several electric generators at the facility were deliberately ruined. The situation at Kamal Adwin was already dire. A senior doctor there earlier described to NPR a stream of wounded patients with complex injuries had overwhelmed the hospital. NPR has been unable to reach that doctor for several days. The Israeli military claims a building at the hospital was, quote, being used by Hamas terrorist operatives and says weapons were located inside. Kat Lonsdorf, NPR News, Tel Aviv. News reports say two separate vessels have been attacked today in the Red Sea. They were struck by projectiles fired from Yemen. Reuters news agency says Houthi rebels have claimed responsibility. It's not clear if there are any injuries. Since the Israel-Hamas war started, ships in the Red Sea have been targeted by projectiles fired from Yemen. U.S. warships have come to the defense of some of the ships. Senate negotiators will work through the weekend to try to reach a compromise on increased security at U.S. borders. Republican lawmakers say they won't support increased aid to Ukraine or Israel without it. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says his chamber will debate a measure next week. We hope to come to an agreement, but no matter what, Members should be aware that we will vote on a supplemental proposal next week. But the House of Representatives has gone for the holiday recess and won't be back until next year. President Biden has been urging Congress to pass fresh aid for Ukraine. That runs out at the end of this year. A Bear County, Texas grand jury has indicted three former San Antonio police officers in the shooting death of a mentally ill woman. Texas Public Radio's Paul Flav has more. Officer Elazar Alejandro and Sergeant Alfred Flores will face first-degree murder charges for killing Melissa Perez. Perez was fired upon by three police officers, but only bullets from Flores and Alejandro struck her. Officer Nicholas Villalobos was indicted on excessive force as well as aggravated assault. Perez was in the midst of a mental health breakdown when police arrived at her apartment complex, where she had been attempting to dismantle fire alarms she thought were monitored by the FBI. Police chased her to her apartment, where she barricaded herself inside. She threw a candlestick, and the officers opened fire. SAPD commanders said the men violated protocol, and they were arrested hours later. I'm Paul Flav in San Antonio. On Wall Street in pre-market trading, Dow futures are down 20 points. 
This is NPR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. Good morning. It's 8.04, Friday, December 15th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is MPB News. U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development appoints a Mississippi native to serve as regional administrator for the Southeast. Jennifer Riley Collins will be HUD's liaison to officials on the local and state level, congressional delegations, and customers. She'll also ensure delivery of HUD programs to eight states, including Mississippi, Florida, Georgia, and U.S. Virgin Islands in Puerto Rico. Riley Collins is from Meridian and a U.S. Army veteran. Coastal researchers are developing a model which analyzes the flow of fresh water release from the Bonnie Carey spillway into the Mississippi Sound. MPB's Michael McEwen reports they're hopeful it could help decide whether to open the spillway's gates. The Bonnie Carey spillway was opened twice in 2019, marking the first time the flood control structure, diverting fresh water from the Mississippi River and Louisiana, was open more than once in the same year. Large amounts of fresh water wound up in the Mississippi Sound, reducing salinity levels throughout to zero and greatly impacting the estuary's fisheries. Ever since, a team of researchers at the University of Southern Mississippi has been developing a model to better understand those dynamics. We've been running what we call hindcast, which is like recreating what happened in the past. That's Dr. Jerry Wigert, professor of marine science at USM and researcher on the project. He says the model analyzes the physics of the system, such as current patterns, dynamic coastal winds, and other freshwater inputs into the sound, to determine how freshwater moves under differing scenarios. Well, we've been working our way towards a model system which now can run forecasts for you know, maybe a couple weeks forward. So then if we get that understanding that the river's running high, the Bonnie Carey is, they're talking about opening it, we can be running the model forward to see, okay, what's that impact going to look like? Wigert is hopeful data produced by the model will help inform decisions made by U.S. Army Corps of Engineers officials on when the spillway should be operated. We now have this capacity for doing these forecasts, which allow us to give kind of a feedback and heads up on, okay, if you do that, this is what will happen. Can we think of alternate strategies? The Mississippi Department of Marine Resources announced nearly $7 million will be dispersed to those affected by the 2019 fisheries disaster in the Mississippi Sound. Michael McEwen, MPB News. During the holiday season, the to-do list can get longer. Mental health experts offer some tips to manage feeling overwhelmed. Here are some. Plan ahead. Say no to some holiday commitments. Make a budget and stick to it. Listen to music or light some candles. Take a break. Share how you're feeling with others. And respect differences. In our forecast for today, mostly cloudy, highs in the 60s. You're listening to Morning Edition on MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Falden. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. President Biden's national security advisor is in Israel trying to get the various parties to the Israel-Hamas war to focus on the future. Who should be in charge of Gaza When the war ends, the U.S. and Israel do not share the same vision. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports on the main proposals. U.S. officials talk about the day after, that's when the intensive fighting is over, and the day after the day after, which is the long-term vision. For the U.S., it's ending Hamas rule in Gaza, having the internationally recognized Palestinian leadership take charge, and creating a Palestinian state in the occupied West Bank and Gaza. Vice President Kamala Harris. We want to see a unified Gaza and West Bank under the Palestinian Authority. And Palestinian voices and aspirations must be at the center of this work. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu this week thanked the U.S. for its support, but added, yes, there is disagreement about the day after Hamas. He said he would not allow Gaza to be ruled by the current Palestinian Authority. Israeli analysts say Netanyahu has his own concerns. There may be new elections. Netanyahu may try to compensate for his government's security failure with the October 7th attacks, 
by positioning himself as the right-wing leader who will prevent a Palestinian state. Former Israeli peace mediator Barak Greenapple. Most likely, Netanyahu will be the one leading Israel, at least in the short term, after the war is over. And his aspirations regarding Gaza are most important to take into consideration. Vice President Harris has laid out three main areas of focus for post-war Gaza. One, reconstruction. Rebuilding Gaza's decimated infrastructure and homes. The oil-rich Arab countries in the Gulf are expected to finance a lot of that, but they have their own demands, including a Palestinian state. Qatari Foreign Ministry spokesman Majid Al-Ansari. Transferring the problem by saying that the international community should come in post this conflict and just fit the bill for uh, all the destruction that happened. It is the occupier that needs to think of their occupation before we say that the international community should come in. Another huge issue for the day after is security. Who will patrol Gaza and prevent attacks on Israel? Vice President Harris again. Until then, there must be security arrangements that are acceptable to Israel, the people of Gaza, the Palestinian Authority, and the international partners. Israel still wants the freedom to carry out military raids in Gaza whenever it wants, like what it does in the West Bank. Michael Milstein is a Palestinian affairs expert now serving as a reservist soldier in the war, doing strategic analysis for the Israeli military. He says after October 7th, Palestinian forces cannot be trusted to patrol their own borders. It is obvious that the main gates from this entity and the world must be controlled by other forces which are not Palestinians, also Israelis, but there may be also an international forces. The U.S. has suggested that some former Palestinian security personnel in Gaza who are not loyal to Hamas could help build a future security force. And then there's the final issue. Who will govern Gaza's day-to-day civilian affairs? Some Israeli and Western diplomats have raised the idea of Gaza's tribal leaders, prominent families of each city, taking charge. But Palestinians say it shouldn't be up to others to choose their own leaders. Palestinian activist Fadi Koran. Nobody will be accepted by Palestinian society unless Palestinians feel that that person is there to represent their will and they chose them. Many Palestinians support Marwan Barghouti as a replacement for the current leader, Mahmoud Abbas. But Barghouti is in Israeli prison for his role in the Palestinian uprising in the 2000s. Many here think he could be freed in a big prisoner swap for the Israeli hostages in Gaza. Koran says it's dangerous for activists in the West Bank to even talk about replacing the Palestinian Authority leadership now during the war. Those who even discuss it can be arrested or harassed. But this is the the conversation happening quietly across our society. There are lots of ideas being floated in coffee shops and embassies, but no clear plan to bring long-term peace to Gaza and Israel. And despite all this talk, a senior U.S. official told reporters that it would be Israel largely dictating the outcome. Israel's leaders are focused on the war, trying to eradicate Hamas rule in Gaza after the October 7th attacks, but they have not spelled out a clear strategy for what comes next. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. House Republicans have launched an impeachment inquiry into President Biden, but what exactly is he accused of doing? The Justice Department has charged his son, Hunter Biden, with nine counts related to his failure to pay federal taxes on millions of dollars of income. Here's what Hunter said outside of the Capitol building two days ago. Let me state as clearly as I can, my father was not financially involved in my business, not as a practicing lawyer not as a board member of Burisma, not in my partnership with a Chinese private businessman, not in my investments at home nor abroad, and certainly not as an artist. So what's this inquiry all about? We're going to ask Republican strategist Scott Jennings. Hi, Scott. Hey, good morning. Good morning. So is there any evidence that Joe Biden did anything wrong? Well, Republicans believe that Joe Biden was involved with Hunter Biden over the years. They think they've uncovered enough smoke, uh, uh, as it were, to launch this impeachment inquiry and see what else they can find. So uh, uh, Democrats, of course, dispute this. Hunter Biden disputes it. But the basic Republican viewpoint is, is that Joe Biden was the product 
and that Hunter Biden was the salesman and that they uh, abused that over the years to enrich themselves. And uh, some of that is borne out in, in what you see in the Hunter Biden uh, indictments. Now, every House Republican voted in favor of formalizing an impeachment inquiry, but there were some that said they don't believe the evidence is there. One even suggested his colleagues were engaging in retribution impeachment. So why did they all vote for it, but also some saying they didn't believe in it? Well, I think that they believe there's a difference between an inquiry, which is just a furtherance of the investigation, okay. and actually going through with impeaching Joe Biden. Uh, I thought it was sort of uh, uh, incredible, frankly, that they got the votes for this, um, but getting the votes for an impeachment, a full-blown impeachment where you send it over to the Senate, I think would, is going to be a, a much steeper climb given that about 18 Republicans in the House represent districts that Joe Biden won in 2020, and they probably believe their constituents would rather than be focused on other things. Is this playing politics, though? Oh, of course. I mean, there's certainly people, I assume, that want to use impeachment to muddy the waters. You've got Donald Trump facing legal issues this year, so they'd like to have Joe Biden, you know, wrapped up in some legal issues to muddy the waters with the American people. I think there are certainly some Republicans who see this as a revenge impeachment, <clears throat> given that Donald Trump was impeached twice. If you want to make this fly with the American people, you have to find something concrete and understandable to get the American people on your side. There is some evidence that the American people think an investigation is fine. An NPR mm -hmm. poll this week you know, showed 49 percent of Americans agreed with the inquiry. But that's different than actually going through with the full thing. And you think that's unlikely? I mean, Senate Republicans are even more skeptical, skeptical as you mentioned. I don't think it's unlikely that they uncover some evidence. But of course, whether that evidence is enough is in the eye of the beholder. One thing that is a political uh, certainty is that Joe Biden will never be convicted, <laughs> no matter what happens uh, in the current makeup of the U.S. Senate. So it is a bit of an exercise in futility. How does this factor into the 2024 election strategy? Well, I think for Joe Biden, it, it ties his White House up a little bit uh, and certainly, um, you know, as a distraction, it puts the Hunter Biden stuff at front and center in the news, which they probably don't want. And for Republicans, the peril would be that they're seen as focusing on things that aren't, uh, you know, inflation, the economy, immigration and other issues. So I do think there's some peril for both parties here as this goes down the tracks. Scott Jennings worked in the White House of former President George W. Bush and is a Republican strategist. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Fifty years ago today, the American Psychiatric Association did a big thing. It removed homosexuality from its list of mental disorders. And that decision helped change how gay people were perceived in America. We were cured overnight by a stroke of the pen. Just as originally, we'd been made sick by probably a stroke of the pen. Barbara Giddings was an activist for LGBTQ equality. And before her death in 2007, Giddings spoke with journalist Eric Marcus for an oral history book called Making Gay History. Now, Eric Marcus hosts a podcast called Making Gay History, which draws from hundreds of interviews from the 1980s and 90s. Marcus says it's hard to imagine today what it was like for gay people to suffer under the label of sickness. You could argue on moral grounds whether or not being a homosexual was a good or bad thing. You could say that it was sinful. If you've been labeled someone who is mentally ill by medical professionals, that's a very hard thing to fight. One of the people who helped bring about the change was Dr. Evelyn Hooker. She conducted a study in the 1950s that concluded being gay is not a mental disorder. She spoke with Marcus before her death in 1996. I know that wherever I go, whether I know it or not, that there are both men and women for whom my little bit of work and my caring enough to do it, has made an enormous difference in their lives. Today, Marcus is focused on a fight for transgender people. What we see among those who are leading the backlash now is that they've gone on after the most vulnerable and the least understood people within the LGBTQ community. Marcus takes heart in the bravery of people like Frank Kameny, who in the late 1950s was dismissed from his position as an astronomer because he was gay. Before his death in 2011, Kameny fought for gay rights and for psychiatrists to remove the illness label. We are the experts on ourselves, and we will tell the experts they have nothing to tell us. But it took a few years to get that across. One of the voices from the past heard on the Making Gay History podcast.
This is NPR News. Good morning. It is 819 on your Friday, December 15th. I'm Desiree Frazier. You're listening to Morning Edition on MPB Think Radio. Happy Friday to you. Hope you're having a wonderful start to the day. We can expect mostly cloudy skies with highs in the 60s for our forecast. So sure, Port Gibson, Rolling Fork, high of 67. Jackson, 64. Pontotoc, 59. Cenotopia, a high of 68. And Loosedale, 60. No, Cenotopia, 62, actually. And Loosedale, 68. On Mississippi Edition at 837, Poverty Law Center study shows far-right groups are spreading misinformation targeting a marginalized community Next, a cannabis testing facility unveils unregulated and illegal products being sold in the state. Plus, how does fresh water from the Bonnie Carey spillway interact with the Mississippi Sound? Researchers are looking for that answer. No matter if you use an app to start your car or still have a flip phone, Everyday Tech can decipher today's technology for tomorrow's solutions. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or the MPB public media app. Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe are proud to present a Vinnie Wombat's Click and Clack production of... <laughs> a Car Talk Christmas Carol. And regional winter holidays, uh, Carol. By Daniel Pinkwater, with a little help from Charles Dickens. Yeah, very little. <laughs> anyway, hit the music. <laughs> Tomorrow morning at 11 on MDB Think Radio. Happy Holidays from Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, for 30 years committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org. From the Center for Audit Quality, committed to enhancing public trust in the economy through assurance. Auditors are serving investors, small businesses, and working Americans. Learn more at thecaq.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skeep. And I'm Leila Falden. When the nominees for the Golden Globes were announced this week, our next guest, Jeffrey Wright, got a nod for Best Performance by an Actor in the film American Fiction. He plays Thelonious Monk Ellison, who's trying to make a name for himself in a publishing world that keeps insisting he be not just a writer, but a writer who writes about, quote, black stuff. The industry wants him to traffic in tropes about poverty and violence. And there's a scene where he's looking for his titles in a bookstore, and he finds they've been shelved in the African-American Studies section. Wait a minute. Why, why are these books here? I'm not sure. I would imagine that this author, Ellison, is black. That's me. Ellison. Oh, bingo. No, no bingo, Ned. These books have nothing to do with African-American studies. They're just literature. The, the blackest thing about this one is the ink. <laughs> Can you tell me what Monk's going through in his career here when we, really, when we first meet him? Well, he writes about the things that interest him. <laughs> and uh, yeah. unfortunately, uh, those consumers of books, those who still read, are not necessarily so interested. <laughs> he writes about uh, Greek mythology as it relates to the black community, things like this that are, that are esoteric but are meaningful to him. So he is frustrated because he has, prior to this, encountered a writer named Centara Golden, played by Issa Rae, who writes, oh, more um, accessible stuff. How did you come to write this book? What really struck me was that too few books were about my people. Where are our stories? Where's our representation? Would you give us the pleasure of reading an excerpt? Yo, Sharonda, girl, you be pregnant again? If I is, Ray Ray is going to be a real father this time around. 
ultimately he decides out of frustration and spite to write his own version of a novel like that, hoping that he's going to kind of reveal the hypocrisy of the publishing world. He writes an urban novel and which blows up in his face. It blows up in terms of its success. It becomes the most successful novel he's ever written. And it blows up because he's written it under a pseudonym and has to assume this character, Stag R. Lee, who yeah. becomes a kind of Frankenstein's monster that circles back to come after him. And this person that he has to assume the character of uh, Stag R. Lee is quite the opposite of anything that Monk is. If we could just, we're just going to play a clip of him trying to pretend to be the person he's created. Mr. Lee, is this, um, is this based on your actual life? Yeah, you think some college boy can come up with that no, 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 I don't. <laughs> and I mean, this is the opposite of who Monk is from this upper class Boston family. And if you could just talk about your character realizing like, oh, this is about to be published and I'm going to get more money than I've ever imagined. Well, yes. Uh, I think the impulse for him is to recognize the absurdity of it and in many ways to resist the temptation. But at the same time, his family is kind of crumbling around him. Yeah. His mother is ailing. There are other crises that the family has endured. And he is asked to be the adult in the room. And there are pressures that come along with that. It was one of the reasons that I was really drawn to this film on an emotional level. Yeah, I mean, he struggles with the decision and, and multiple times thinks about pulling out. But like you point out, he's dealing with trying to figure out care for his mother, who and it's quite expensive. He's partially estranged from his brother and sister at the beginning of the movie and finds himself to be the person who has to pay for everything. You say you were drawn to the film because of this family story. If you could talk more about that. Well, yeah, at the time that I had received this script, I'd lost my mom uh, about a year or so prior. I'm so sorry. I understood yeah, a very, in a very specific way what that moment is for a person. And I also think that aspect of our film provides some universal space for people to inhabit. This is a family that's, you know, dysfunctional and functional and loving and maddening like anybody else's family. It just happens to be inhabited by these black folk. It's in some ways, extraordinary in its ordinariness. I haven't seen, you know, a family like this often that's messy and beautiful and, and black, <laughs> just universally human. So much of the storyline is about white guilt, white America's idea of what representation is. There's a, a great line in the film, I'm paraphrasing here, white people think they want the truth. What they really want is absolution. Can you talk about that? Well, I don't think that the film is targeting any one demographic and laying blame there. What I appreciate about the film and about the book that it's based on is that the writers are fluent in race and race language particularly and context. And so they can create dialogues that are smart. I don't think we do that enough in our country. I don't think we have the capacity to do that. We see it bubbling up and like, like just boiling over now. We are informed from the beginnings of our country and every day by race dynamics, all of us, whether we want to admit it or not. Yeah. And either because we are afraid to confront that messiness or we have been damaged by that messiness to the point where we, we lack a clarity and objectivity, we're not capable of having smart conversations about the issues and therefore we keep repeating the same stupid mistakes over and again. So the film, I think, at least for the couple hours that it's shining on a screen, at least provides a space, I think, for a, a bit of a heightened conversation. That's Jeffrey Wright. He was just nominated for a Golden Globe for his performance in the new film, American Fiction. Congratulations and thank you. Thank you so much.
This is NPR News. This forecast is underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi and the MyBlue mobile app for people on the go. More at bcbsms.com. Sailing through our Friday with some very nice quiet weather as high pressure continues to dominate the weather picture. However, it's going to retreat, allow our next system to move in, and that will be a rainmaker Saturday into Saturday night. Boonville today, lots of sunshine. Our high temperatures this afternoon right around 60. An increase in the cloud cover tonight, overnight low in the low 40s. Greenwood will see sunny skies today, our high this afternoon near 65. An increase in the cloud cover tonight, chance of overnight showers we drop down into the upper 40s. And in Pascagoula, plenty of sun mid-60s today, a few isolated showers tonight, low 50s. I'm meteorologist Sally Russell. This is Think Radio. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, December 15th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the Southern Poverty Law Center studies far-right groups across the country. They're finding their misinformation is being used to target a marginalized community. Next, a cannabis testing facility has revealed the presence of unregulated and illegal products are being sold over the counter in the state. Plus, researchers are developing a model to understand how fresh water released from the Bonnie Carey spillway interacts with the Mississippi Sound estuary. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Researchers at the Southern Poverty Law Center say they have identified a network of over 60 far-right organizations attempting to undermine public opinion about the LGBTQ community. Analysts say a large yet closely maintained network are increasingly relying on pseudoscience as a tool to advance their cause. They also use misinformation to advance legislation and legal action targeting the LGBT community. Rachel Carol Rivas is a deputy director of research, reporting, and analysis at the Southern Poverty Law Center. Over the last decade, there has been a network of far-right actors that has emerged to challenge the LGBTQ plus rights movement and quite frankly, to spread disinformation about gender identity, about affirming healthcare practices. And they've done so by using pseudoscience. Um, And this is not based on clinical study and it is not grounded in scientific rigor. So our report takes this deep dive and offers a backbone of information exposing this network that, quite frankly, wants to be in the shadows at times, or at least wants to be very clear that they're shadowy about the tactics they're using and the lack of scientific rigor in what they are proposing And so we hope that this is a backbone, this report, for further action that moves into many other spheres and sectors in society and can be used by communities directly on the ground who are facing, you know, quite frankly, face-to-face the folks in this network and their proposals to roll back rights. A growing number of states, including Mississippi, have recently passed laws that restrict trans teens from seeking gender-affirming health care. Laws are often vague, and experts in this field of law say it's not clear if this prevents trans youth from seeking counseling for their gender dysphoria diagnosis. R.G. Cravens is a postdoctoral scholar at the University of Missouri and the lead editor and author of the report. He says this type of anti-LGBTQ legislation can cause severe harm to young people. The attack on the LGBTQ plus community and and targeting of trans and non-binary people under the guise of science has proliferated over the last five years. And the gender-affirming care model which begins with supporting a person's LGBTQ plus identity as a first course of action in healthcare, represents a global medical consensus. But the attempts to undermine it that we detail in this report are manufactured. And to describe the purpose of the report, I thought it was helpful to focus on the idea of accessible, informative narratives. And the report has six chapters um, that each offer an important component of the story 
of anti-LGBTQ plus pseudoscience. And together they form a big picture that explains a lot of what we are seeing in the current moment. And so our purpose for this report was to draw a through line connecting the tradition of justifying oppression of marginalized groups with pseudoscience and the contemporary anti-trans narratives produced and, and disseminated by those who are claiming to be objective researchers of LGBTQ plus healthcare. Um, so we also identify uh, common narratives used in anti-LGBTQ plus pseudoscientific studies. And we identify groups and actors involved in the contemporary anti-LGBTQ plus pseudoscientific movement that is attacking gender affirming care specifically. Emerson Hodges is a research analyst for the Southern Poverty Law Center's Intelligent Project. They say the first section of the report focuses on how anti-LGBTQ actors have used debunked data to support their claims. The anti-LGBTQ pseudoscience not only upholds the systemic marginalization of LGBTQ plus identities and people, but it also does real harm. This brand of pseudoscience works through reparative therapy, otherwise known as conversion therapy, to convince LGBTQ people and their families and friends that they're unnatural and a danger to themselves and the greater community, and even worse, that they don't exist. Through the anti-LGBTQ's movement, their strategy of attacking transgender identities and the rights of transgender people has really pushed trans and non-binary individuals into isolation. We show that this strategy has brought those who should be ideologically opposed, such as anti-trans feminists, into ideological alignment with the anti-LGBTQ movement as a whole. In chapter four, we share the results of an analysis of over a hundred frequently cited scientific studies used to support the litigious attacks on the LGBTQ community and the rights through analysis of four prominent court cases of 2019 and 2022. We also detail in this chapter the grounding of the pseudoscience in prejudice, stereotypes, and ultra-conservative messaging. It's very clear in the first four chapters of our report how these groups have adapted ex-gay strategies of the early 90s into attacking LGBT community through the targeting and marginalization of trans and non-binary individuals. R.G. Craven says another wave of anti-trans legislation could come next year. He says the report also shows how states, doctors, and educators can protect trans youth as lawmakers prepare to come back to the Capitol in January. When anti-LGBTQ plus pseudoscience turns into policy, it has real life and often life-threatening consequences for trans and non-binary people. And so it's important for us to say uh, that, that we shouldn't be afraid to challenge false narratives and defend LGBTQ plus affirming healthcare as the scientific consensus uh, that it represents. Um, as Emerson said a moment ago, um, LGBTQ plus identity is natural. It is not a mental illness. LGBTQ plus people are a valuable part of any diverse society, uh, not a threat, right, as these false narratives claim. And the LGBTQ plus affirming healthcare model represents a global medical and scientific consensus. It's not a conspiracy, right, to turn kids trans, which is one of the common narratives that we detail. In this uh, final chapter, we also talk about the, the need for inclusive education practices and uh, to really highlight that any purported scientific claim that reinforces prejudice to challenge and not accept it at face value. During the 2023 legislative session, Mississippi lawmakers banned hormone therapy and gender reassignment operations for minors. Coming up, a cannabis testing facility has revealed the presence of unregulated and illegal products sold over the counter. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. 
I'm Robin Young. Award-winning author Martha Wells returns with a new Murderbot Diaries book. The best-selling series centers around a cranky but lovable AI. Murderbot's experiencing, you know, a lot of trauma, but it's still moving forward, still trying to make decisions, still trying to protect its friends. Next time, here and now. Today at noon on MVB Think Radio. Work week ends with local programs on MPB Think Radio. At 9, all aspects of gardening are discussed on the Gestalt Gardener. Next Stop Mississippi highlights events taking place around the state at 10. At 11, explore women's health on Southern Remedy for Women. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. A cannabis testing facility has revealed the presence of unregulated and illegal products sold over the counter. A loophole in a 2018 federal farm bill allows hemp-based cannabis products to be sold legally as long as they contain no more than 0.3% of Delta 9 THC, and that's the main psychoactive compound in marijuana. The products have flooded gas stations and vape shops nationwide, all promising a legal high. Cliff Osborn is co-founder of Steep Hill, the first licensed medical cannabis testing lab in the state. We are not here today to talk about legal medical marijuana that is made by licensed cultivators or processors. We're here to talk about something very different. He announced this week he purchased a variety of Delta 9 products at stores throughout Rankin County, tested them, and found they contained three to 40 times the legal amount of THC. None of the samples that we picked up, and we picked up about eight samples of pre-rolls, none of them were limited to 0.3% THC. In fact, they contained anything from three to 40 times that amount. This is a lot higher levels than we expected. Uh, They also had edibles or gummies for sale, and some of those were available in strengths and quantities greater than a person with a medical marijuana card in Mississippi could go buy at a legal dispensary. But I think one of the things that concerned us the most was the fact that some of these products seem to be sold without regard for the contaminants that are in them. Uh, We tested one sample of pre-rolls that had uh, a number of pesticides in it, and according to the Department of Health Standards for Medical Marijuana, which this isn't, this is gas station product, it would have failed for not one pesticide, not two, but this product for sale to anybody that wants to buy it failed for eight pesticides. Two of those failed at 17 times the legal limit in Mississippi, and one failed at 20 times the legal limit. Again, we're concerned about this. What do these pesticides do? Well, they cause body tremors, muscle spasms, muscle weakness, rapid heartbeat, difficulty breathing, seizures, and yes, you guessed it, in high enough concentrations, they can be fatal. Osborne announced these discoveries alongside several advocates for the state's medical cannabis industry and state lawmakers. Republican Representative Lee Yancey of Brandon chairs the House Drug Policy Committee. He tells our Will Stribling this will need to be addressed in the upcoming legislative session. Friends of mine or acquaintances have been sending me newspaper clippings and links to articles from the coast, from North Mississippi, all year wanting me to do something about gas station uh, products being sold that they suspected had more THC than allowed. Cliff Osmond's a longtime friend with Steep Hill right here in Flowood, and he had the idea to go around and test, and I didn't even know he was doing it, and, and then he called me and told me the results. You know, and I've heard from school principals, uh, superintendents, that this is a problem in schools. We wanted to do something with this last year. We were not sure how to go about with the testing process because we were trying to get the medical cannabis program up and going. And the problem that we had a year ago is that we didn't have enough testers to test all the products. And so I didn't want to throw another burden on top of our testers. And so now I think we've gotten to the point where we have enough testers to 
have an added layer of protection for the public when it comes to the products that they buy. And so any bill that comes forward, uh, if we even allow these products to, to continue to be sold, would require them to be tested, make sure there's no pesticides or too much THC, I mean, all the things that they test for. Because the public deserves to know that the products that they buy are safe and uh, or as safe as they can be. And we certainly don't want middle schoolers and high schoolers going to the gas station and, and getting a product they can buy legally because it's mislabeled, spend their days and weeks and months at school high. So, you know, that doesn't help us with educating our kid and our workforce and long term. And that's, is this a problem that has popped up in other states that, that, that acted medical cannabis um, programs? And if, if there are, is there a sort of a blueprint for how other state legislatures have, have dealt with this problem? So, yes, and it's all across the board the way other states have handled it. Some have just outright banned synthetic products, and that's the easy way. No Delta-8, you know, no Delta-10. Nothing there that uh, anyone can can get other than what's sold through the medical cannabis dispensaries. Um, synthetic products, you know, are basically just man-made versions of the real thing, and you know, generally uh, they have uh, they're not natural, so they have you know more problems associated with the synthetic versions. Although there are some synthetics that are approved by the FDA, so like Marinol and Epidiolex that are made from the marijuana plant. So uh, we just want to make sure that what we're offering is medicine, that it's been tested, that it's safe, and that uh, the cannabis that we have in Mississippi is within the scope of the Mississippi Medical Cannabis Association. We're all about medical. We're not about recreational. And uh, we certainly don't want to see children buying these products in gas stations. Well, uh, is there, are there any other priorities of yours for the upcoming session that you'd like to talk about? Well, I have lots of bills filed. Um, you know, some are carryovers from last year that did not pass that I still feel very passionate about. But generally, uh, we're all waiting in the House to see uh, what assignments we get from the new speaker. And I look forward to tackling whatever comes across my desk. Republican Representative Lee Yancey of Brandon chairs the House Drug Policy Committee. Next, researchers are developing a model to better understand how fresh water released from the Bonnie Carey Spillway interacts with the Mississippi Sound Estuary. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. What are your holiday traditions? Driving to see relatives? Baking treats? Curling up on the couch near the fireplace? MPB Think Radio can be a part of each of these holiday events. Listen on your car radio or your smart speaker, along with on-demand favorites like Deep South Dining and AutoCorrect inside the MPB Public Media app. Start a new tradition today, listening to MPB Think Radio while you celebrate the holidays. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, host of The Original Southern Remedy, the show where I answer your medical questions Subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on any podcasting app. Fill your weekend evenings with music broadcast from MPB Think Radio or stream from mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Coastal researchers are developing a model which analyzes the flow of freshwater release from the Bonnie Carey Spillway into the Mississippi Sound. Large amounts of freshwater wound up in the Mississippi Sound, reducing salinity levels to zero, impacting the estuary's fisheries. Ever since, a team of researchers at the University of Southern Mississippi have been developing a model to better understand those dynamics. Dr. Jerry Wigert is professor of marine science at USM and researcher on the project. He tells our Mike McEwen about the system and how they hope advanced simulations can determine how fresh water moves when exposed to salty ocean currents and winds. And the domain for our, our model is basically the Mississippi Bight all the way up to the coastline, and it cuts off at about the, at the shelf break farther offshore. And so what we've got is a way to look in a kind of holistic way, because not all models will cover that entire range, but there's 
the circulation patterns, you know, from kind of the Birdfoot Delta with the fresh water of the Mississippi River, that fresh water tends to really push things around on the shelf. And so capturing all of that is what we, you know, what our model does. So the basic part of it is the circulation, the physical model, which gives you temperature and salinity and current patterns. And it's all driven by the freshwater inputs from the rivers. If the Bonnie carries open, we have that as part of the model. And then the winds that are, you know, high, very dynamic in this region are also part of what forces the model. And forcing means it's sort of helping push it around. So the, the winds blow and there's an ocean response. And so that's what this model is designed to do. The 2019 double opening of the Bonnie Carey Spillway was unprecedented in a way that they typically only open it about once a decade and they opened it twice that year. Uh, to your knowledge and expertise, what was the impact of that? It was profound. Uh, you know, like you said, that was the first time ever the Bonnie Carey spillway had been operated twice within a calendar year. So that was totally unprecedented. Over the time frame of about four years, we've had openings basically every year, which is also unprecedented. So for 2019, the amount of water that was released through the spillway through Lake Pontchartrain and into the Mississippi Sound was something like the equivalent of six volumes of Lake Pontchartrain. And with all of that fresh water being released and then having to sort of propagate, it really did a number on the oyster reefs all through the Sound. I mean, basically, it was almost 100% mortality, which is, I mean, catastrophically bad for the system. And it's, you know, taken years to even start to see that it's starting to pick up and recover. And am I correct in in thinking that the salinity level in the Mississippi Sound uh, essentially just dropped to zero throughout the entirety of that estuary? Yeah, it was pretty... It was extensive. I don't know if it got all the way, like in the eastern Mississippi Sound, when you get over near Mobile Bay, I'm not sure it necessarily was zero, but for much of that domain with where the oyster reefs are, particularly outside of Bay St. Louis, there was an extended time frame where it was effectively zero, which is really a bad scenario for oysters if that persists. And that went on for weeks. And so it was really a a scenario where they could not survive their way through it because they can do things like shut down their physiological activity for a while and, and sort of weather it events, but this was too long for that really to be possible. And so your model is essentially trying to determine moving forward if there are any future openings of the Bonnie Carey Spillway, what that will look like certain levels in the spillway and and the corresponding freshwater input into the sound? Could you just explain that a little more? Yes. Key part here is, like, we've been running what we call, like, sort of hindcast, which is like re recreating what happened in the past. And what we've been working our way towards a model system, which now can run forecasts, you know, for a short, you know, maybe a couple weeks forward. So then if we get that understanding that, you know, the river's running high, the Bonnie Carey is, is, you know, they're talking about opening it. We can start to say, okay, well, if we say there's going to be, like if we project and say, okay, on this date, they're going to open it and allow this much water in, we can be running the model forward to see, okay, what's that impact going to look like? And so that's what's exciting about where we're, where we're at now is we now have this capacity for doing these forecasts, which allow us to give a you know, kind of a feedback and heads up on, okay, if you do that, this is what will happen. Can we think of alternate strategies? So that's sort of the short answer. The longer answer is trying to look, use this model as a way to explore scenarios for opening operations, right? And and so that's that's kind of what we're trying to stage ourselves for is to provide sort of a comprehensive exploration with the model of, okay, if we started to adjust the strategy for opening, 
what would that buy us in terms of less impact on the reefs within West, the Mississippi Sound? Jerry Wigard is a professor of marine science at University of Southern Mississippi and a researcher on a project to understand how fresh water moves when entering the Mississippi Sound. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Stick around for a full morning of Mississippi programming. Coming up at 9 is the Gestalt Gardener. At 10, it's Next Stop Mississippi. Then at 11, don't miss Southern Remedy. Find past installments of this and other Think Radio shows online at mpbonline.org. I'm Desiree Frazier. Join us Monday morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition only on MPB Think Radio. Have a great weekend. hard to do. Just ask the EU. From American Public Media, this is Marketplace Tech. I'm Lily Dramali. Marketplace Tech is supported by Pi Insurance, helping small businesses thrive with commercial insurance designed to be as easy as Pi so you can get back to business. Learn more from your agent or at IWantPi.com. And by UiPath, providing organizations the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform. More at UiPath.com marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. It took 37 hours of marathon negotiations, but the European Union recently passed what's being called the world's most ambitious law regulating AI. Now the hard part, hashing out the details, a process that got underway this week. Axios tech policy reporter Maria Curie joined me to talk about Europe's AI Act. This is a really big deal. I mean, it's 450 million uh, consumers in Europe that will eventually be impacted and huge market for the biggest tech companies as well as smaller players. Um, It's also important because once again, Europe is leading the way in global regulation. Um, The U.S. likely won't do exactly what the EU does, but Uh, Certainly people here are paying attention to how it all plays out in the EU to inform policymaking here. What does the law require tech companies to do if they do want to move forward and operate in the EU? So this deal, which was reached last Friday, uh, does a few things. It categorizes um, AI rules based on risk. So minimal risk, limited, high, and unacceptable risk. And each category has its own Um, set of rules. Um, It also creates mechanisms for monitoring advances in the technology. It enforces transparencies. And so companies are going to have to disclose certain data and certain information about the products they're developing. And it also imposes financial penalties for noncompliance. So companies could pay up to 7% of global revenue um, if they don't comply with the different aspects of the law. Yeah, and it looks like there is still quite a bit to hash out here. Officials have almost a dozen technical meetings scheduled over the next several months. Uh, What are some of the details left to work out? So part of the reason why those 37 hours were so long and gruesome was because there were two major um, issues at play that were being debated. And the first issue is really uh, the most contentious one. It has to do with uh, facial recognition for policing and national security reasons. Um, and what the basically the, the conclusion they came to was that scraping uh, faces or security footage from the internet to create a facial recognition uh, database was not going to be allowed. But there are going to be exemptions. So, for example, law enforcement can still still use real-time recognition to combat things like trafficking, terrorist threats, to track down criminals more generally. Um, But one of the things that still has to be hashed out in the implementation process is what legal basis these things are going to um, be implemented with. That was reporter Maria Curie at Axios. 
This conversation was part of our Tech Week in Review segment. You can hear and watch it in full on our website, marketplace.org slash techbytes. Rosie Hughes produced this episode. Jesus Alvarado and Daniel Shin also produce our show. Gary O'Keefe and Becca Weinman are our engineers. Daisy Palacios is our senior producer. Kelly Silvera is our executive producer. I'm Lily Jamali, and that's Marketplace Tech. This is APM. From pre-K to high school, Mississippi Public Broadcasting's education department enriches student learning. Learn more at mpbonline.org. This forecast is underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Smarter, better healthcare. More at bcbsms.com. Dry, beautiful weather in place for today, but it's Saturday into Saturday night. We get our next system in here, increasing the chance for wet weather. Oxford, sunny skies today. Our high temperatures this afternoon, right around 60. The clouds will roll on in later on tonight. Could see a late night shower. Overnight lows will drop down into the lower 40s. In Vicksburg, we're looking at sunny skies today. Our high this afternoon, upper 60s to near 70. Showers will roll on in late tonight. Overnight lows will drop down into the upper 40s. And in Hattiesburg, plenty of sunshine today. Our high this afternoon near 65. Increasingly cloudy near 50 tonight. I'm McRelligious, Sally Russell. This is Think Radio.